so uh yeah hello everyone welcome to another episode of chatter uh today i am here with uh joanna chui uh and i really hope actually now that we've talked about that i have pronounced that correctly um it's like a rhymes with pew like joanna chu chu okay <laughs> okay so well anyway you're the author of china unbound which i really wish i'd remembered to lift my copy of when i was leaving the house this morning but i didn't <laughs> but uh yes yeah, so you're here to talk mainly about the book so why don't you tell people like a little bit about you and then why you chose to write the book just as like a, a good place to start from yeah um well thanks so much for reading my book and having me on your podcast i really Pleasure. appreciate it um i have my own podcast and it's a lot of the episodes that are hardest work is when I have to write a, read a whole book and then, you know, interview their author and there's so much to cover and, you know, I really appreciate it. Um, so I am a Canadian journalist, but I spent, you know, most of a decade abroad. Um, you know, my passion and curiosity growing up has always been about China and how much it was changing and the fact that my family were immigrants from Hong Kong. Um, so basically everyone's origin story um, who is of Chinese origin around the world, you know, has some sort of political dimension to it. Um, for me, my family was, you know, the worry about the Hong Kong handover from British to Chinese rule, the worry about the authoritarian system in Beijing, especially after the 1989 uh, Tiananmen massacre. So this was all in my head and I really wanted to understand China from inside. Um, so I lived in Beijing and Hong Kong for seven years as a foreign correspondent for Western media. Um, kind of an interesting mix of Western media. I've worked for Germans, French, you know, Americans, um, interestingly, not Canadians. Um, we don't have a lot of foreign postings overseas. Um, but, you know, seeing how different countries have kind of different self-interest when it comes to wanting to understand what's going on in China was helpful to me. Um, I ended up, you know, covering some of the more dark and depressing topics. I ended up with uh, kind of like a beat of human rights and um, legal development, which isn't as, you know, bleak as it sounds. Um, the legal system in China is complicated, but actually I've never set foot inside a courtroom. Um, Whereas um, if you were a court reporter all around the world, you spent all this time in courtroom and said, you know, I'll be roughed up by plain clothes police trying to get inside a courtroom to witness, you know, China's law in action. Um, so, you know, I could have spent decades in China, like I could have spent so much time just exploring so many topics, um, but I wanted to be back home in Vancouver with my family. But, you know, the China story followed me um, months after I returned in late 2018. Um, Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei executive, she was arrested in Vancouver airport. And, you know, weeks after that, days after that, the two Michaels, um, Michael Kovic and Michael Stavor, they were detained very blatantly, even at the time as hostages by Beijing, uh, because they're angry about what happened to their star um, tech executive for their champion uh, tech company. Um, so the China story followed me. It became more of a global story where in the past I would file stories about crackdowns on China's human rights lawyers. And those stories would not go viral. Often they would not be anywhere near the front page. Um, but suddenly here in Canada, uh, American media, they'd be kind of be like, you just came back from China, please explain what's happening. Um, and that led to the book deal. Um, so for the book, I wanted to kind of provide a service in this moment where more 
average people, you know, non-China experts want to know what's going on with all the complexities of growing tensions um, with Beijing um, all around the world. Um, my focus is particularly on Western countries and kind of tracking the relationship between Western nations and China through the last decades and analyzing what went wrong. How did we get to this point where so belatedly, I feel like people are going like, whoa, what's going on? Um, you know, China just took two Canadian men hostage because they wanted something. Um, it's gonna, we knew that there are human rights issues in China, but hey, this can affect the world. This can affect foreign nationals. Um, so I felt because I was steeped in this environment, living in China, that it was pretty obvious how things were developing, but really um, to even well-informed people around the world, it like wasn't so clear. So I wanted to lay it all down in something that was, I wouldn't say fun, but I would say trying to be accessible um, to read, um, thought-provoking, and providing what journalists can do, which is that on-the-ground um, reality more so in each country, almost um, almost a reportage, um, not a travelogue, because travelogues imply that I'm going around, you know, setting myself on the beach. Instead, I'm like interviewing <laughs> Uyghurs uh, who fled from Xinjiang. Uh, um, so, you know, not a happy travel log, but definitely the aim was to get people replicate the experience that I was lucky to have, which is live in China and travel around the world doing these case study uh, research and reporting um, on the relationship uh, so that I think the cross country comparisons are so essential. We can tend to get stuck in our own countries. Uh, kind of silos like especially like U.S. China like Americans when they think about their China relationship it's so much it's as if there's only two countries in the world it's like U.S. China competing um, getting feedback from Americans in particular it's like oh it's so interesting to actually know what other countries their relationship with China their experiences so I wanted to provide that for readers and just one volume that's provides as much concise history and context and expert opinions and analysis as possible so that um, I could help um, hopefully elevate the quality of our conversations in China and you know, have some food or thought on ways we can actually improve concrete foreign policy in China all around the world. Well, I have to say you did a fantastic job. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed the book. I found it very, very easy to speed read as I had to. Um, and I can normally tell how like consumable a book is by how much I'm able to like, yeah, how fast I'm able to read it. I mean, it probably helps that I'm I'm, I'm reading a couple of books at the minute that are all are in, in like a similar topic. Like I'm reading a book mm -hmm. from um, from Shari Markson, the Australian journalist, um, mm -hmm. what really happened in Wuhan. So so like the two kind of complemented each other quite a lot, actually, uh, in the end, because like obviously she's talking about something very specific. But then you can kind of see the trends of the things that you've been talking about, like laid out in the story she's telling um so the first thing actually i want to ask is your parents are from hong kong and you said they they'd left because of fears about what was going to happen um with the with the, the handover from from the uk so were their fears realized like is 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 what they expected is that basically what's unfolded yeah well i think a lot of people were privileged to have the opportunity to immigrate uh, back then. Um, and now, you know, I'm only a Canadian citizen. I actually gave up my Hong Kong citizenship to be safer as a journalist operating in China. But, you know, sometimes, like, I spent the last few years being pretty 
it's always in the back of my, my mind or the front of my mind, what's happening in Hong Kong. It seems month after month, it's getting worse and worse. Um, when I was there, um, I covered the really, really vibrant pro-democracy movement, the protests that, you know, occupied the city for months peacefully. And at first, you know, Hong Kong police were famous around Asia for being, you know, some of Asia's finest, um, really civil, you know, I would call the police department, like how many protesters? They're like, well, according to our count, there's this much and it would actually be reliable. They would issue permits for protests to happen and actually escort protesters down the streets. Um, so going from that, when I was living in Hong Kong to now, where protesters, they've been shot in the chest. Um, they've been arrested for holding up blank signs as a really subtle form of protest, like a blank sign or reading a newspaper, reading a newspaper that's disliked for being pro-democratic. Um, those things have all been happening in Hong Kong. Um, dozens of elected lawmakers have been arrested, including my former sources I used to meet with all the time. Um, Journalists have been arrested. Newspapers have been forced to shut down. You know, their assets have been frozen. And in, you know, the last couple of years, this has all been enabled by the national security law that, you know, the Chinese central government really pushed, have been pushing for a while. Um, and it's similar to, you know, that kind of issues I was dealing with living in mainland China, where when things are to do with national security, they can be so vague and, you know, it sounds like things like treason sound like so archaic, but literally people are worried about whether they can talk about anything, even on social media, even in private messages, because um, people who've been arrested, their WhatsApp messages have been scrutinized. Like, have you been consorting with Western media? Because part of the law is um, working um, inclusion with foreign forces. So Hong Kong definitely, I think it's gone further, faster than most people uh, including Hong Kong immigrants and people living in Hong Kong would have imagined uh, back in 97 when um, people were, some people were worried about the handover from British colonial to Hong, uh, to back to Chinese rule. It is complicated because um, it's not as if people, I think, uh, idealize in times under actually being a British colony. Um, I think just the fact that it was more hands-off, but it was actually a pretty brutal society with very little social safeties, safeguards are not a perfect society at all, but it's just a contrast to just a strong interference and crackdowns on civil society in Hong Kong that we've seen. Um, yeah, I don't think it's the same city. I was last in 2019 covering the latest round of protests, which again, at that time were much more violent. People were getting hurt all the time. Um, you know, it become almost like guerrilla where some protesters kind of become um kind of like really emotional and they actually some of them resort to violence towards the police and the police respond with you know much more force so yeah it's sad to see how chaotic things have been and how right now how scared people in all sectors in hong kong are mm. yeah it's very easy for that that to happen when you get like a yeah. emotionally charged situation and yeah. people feeling like it's uh almost like a life or death sort of like mm -hmm. fight and then you get a whole bunch of people and you get yeah. the police and it's like that just it's just a, a powder keg really isn't it yeah yeah it's yeah definitely a lot of people think it was the last stand and a lot of the ideas like people feel like they've they've lost the last stand but they also don't want to feel that hong kong as a freer society is dead they, because they think if they kind of give up and say okay we're just better um, really restricted Chinese city now that any um, 
anything that still sets Hong Kong apart with having, you know, some semblance of a freer civil society will also erode. So the message from people in Hong Kong I talked to is like, don't give up on Hong Kong yet. Like still pay attention to what's going on. Mm. But yeah, it's tough. So uh, one of the things that, that you, you mentioned in the book, and there was like a theme of the, like quite a lot of things, is where, where there, there was numerous examples you cite where Chinese, um, whether it's like intelligence officials in, um, in China or whether it's like one of the groups in the many countries that you kind of describe mm-hmm. in, the, in the different chapters, that they focus like re- they go really hard on on what seems like really tiny and innocuous things mm-hmm. and like people that would not mean anything, and and yeah. and like that kind of rhymes with what you were saying about the the protesters like being like that all they do would be like a blank sign and that was too much. Mm-hmm. It's like what do you think that there's is it is it is the the national security like intelligence state so overarching that they have the resources to just go after individuals or are we seeing the examples that are meant to like set an example essentially for for the for the others i think both for sure and i try to explain like why this happens because for so long it's been happening for decades like here in vancouver canada definitely london australia um it started off with places around the world where Chinese immigrants uh, left China and settled in because historically, um, you know, the Chinese leaders have had opposition from overseas Chinese. Um, the last dynasty of China, the Qing dynasty, was overthrown by someone, Sun Yat-sen, and his forces. He studied in Hawaii. He visited and stayed with his older brother. And- yeah so um and then he gathered like resources like money from overseas chinese who were kind of fed up with kind of feudal imperial rule and you know overthrew a dynasty um so definitely there's precedent um to pay attention to what's going on um around the world because they worry um that people of chinese descent even if they've lived overseas for generations might have a greater impact on um what's happening domestically in China, you know, people, and it, you know, there's some truth to it. When the, you know, the audio app uh, Clubhouse mm-hmm. wasn't banned in China, um, there were these rooms, um, chat rooms with, you know, thousands of people, hundreds of people, including uh, people from Taiwan, Hong Kong, um, you know, Americans of Chinese descent in, uh, in these groups talking about really sensitive issues like what's happening in Xinjiang, what's happening in Hong Kong, and they were speaking and dialoguing directly with mainland Chinese citizens. And they were able to talk because they spoke Mandarin. A lot of people retained their ability to speak Chinese. Um, and you can see changes like people in China who were skeptical because they've only been exposed to Chinese propaganda and state media about what's happening in Xinjiang to the Uyghurs. They were very like disbelieving at first, but after hours of conversation with overseas Chinese (laughs) and experts who spoke Chinese from around the world, a lot of them, you know, they were breaking down crying, Um, you know, their opinions changed. And that's exactly what Beijing doesn't want to see happen. Um, That's why Clubhouse is banned. That's why Facebook, Google products, Twitter, they're all banned. And there's, you know, crackdowns on, you know, social media is so tight in China. Um, And And that leads to what has been happening for decades with trying to understand and track and monitor the activities of um, people, both 
overseas Chinese and China experts, like people of all nationalities and ethnicities who follow what's happening in China, trying to understand what these communities around the world are up to and trying to influence them to be more friendly to Beijing. Um, and this, you know, used to be, they used like economic pressure, like ad, um, putting pressure on advertisers for Chinese language, um, independent media around the world to pull their ads um, if they have any sort of business links to China, like putting pressure on that. So to try to control the conversations around the world. And my research has found that, you know, it's not clear how long this has been happening, but definitely in the last five, 10 years, it's it seemed to ramped up where when, you know, those subtle economic pressures aren't working, where there's still these like things like solidarity marches or Hong Kong all over the world. That worries Chinese leaders. And um, I found that people have actually received physical visits from people who identify themselves as, you know, linked to the Chinese embassies or calls from Chinese police saying, don't do this, even if you're in Canada or the UK, otherwise something will happen to your family in China, something will happen to your business, like, you know, threatening these pretty serious things. Like imagine if you had any kind of like friends or family in China who could, you know, arbitrarily be thrown in jail or, you know, lose your homes uh, because of your, your free speech around the world. Um, this has become so common and it's really flown under the radar because it seems strange, like why would any country, no matter how you know well-resourced, spend so much time of actually calling random people around the world to threaten them, um, to figure out who their family members are in China, um, what their businesses are like, if they have any links. Um, but it makes sense when you think about just understand how sensitive and almost paranoid uh, the Chinese state is. Um, it's as if they feel that their hold on power is very unstable. Um, I was covering things like when the stock market seemed to be crashing in China. Um, I was covering some labor protests, actually. Labor movements where factory workers were trying to agitate in China. So there are there's, there is unrest all over China that we don't hear about understand. And having that overseas um, concern and interest is sometimes it's just unacceptable. Um, so um, if, if people want to read an excerpt from my book, I'm um, in the Toronto Star in my newspaper, I, there's an excerpt where I describe what happened to uh, a Chinese international student studying in Canada. He had two Twitter followers and he was just like, you know, that one freaked me out. with the platform. That, because that really freaked me out, man. Two followers yeah, under a fake name. Right, it was under a oh, fake. Was it? Yeah. Who was under a fake name? Who had like? Yeah, so fake name. Yeah, fake he, name. He changed his gender to female. Yeah. Um, he used a VPN even while in Canada because he was worried, you know. He's and then he got a call first from his dad saying, "Son, what are you doing? The Chinese police are, you know, knocking on our door." And then he got a call from um, Chinese police from his um, home city in China, saying, "We know who you are. We know what you did." We track your IP address in Canada, um, you know, take down those posts or else. And he actually never said anything. He only retweeted a few posts, including a video that was kind of lightly poking fun of, you know, Xi Jinping. Um, and he tried to report what happened to Canadian police authorities because he was actually studying law uh, at a good university in Canada. He understood his rights and that this was 
unacceptable. Um, but Canadian police basically laughed him off saying like, you have freedom of speech in Canada. This is not something that we can help with. You could do what you want and did not even take down his report. Um, so that's why my book I say is almost as I did more research, it's almost as much about Western complicity and willful ignorance and just, just a lack of attention and concern as it is um, criticizing what um, Chinese authorities are doing, because I think they've only been able to be so widespread and do all these things and basically terrorize a lot of ordinary people around the world because Western governments just haven't prioritized this, haven't taken it seriously. Um, and, you know, people don't feel supported. So when people don't feel supported, it becomes worse because we have less people who understand what's happening, willing to speak up and be experts or, you know, uh, witness testimonies um, because they don't feel safe. Uh, so it's kind of like a cycle. And so each chapter of my book kind of describes what's happening and also describes what basically in every place I visited, um, the governments aren't doing or aren't aware of. Yeah, I want to come back to that. Um, in just a minute, because that that I feel is a very big point um, is that the Western sort of uh, either either complicity or or willful ignorance is a, mm -hmm. like a really key thing. But before we go there, I just want to ask: Do you think their hold on power is as tenuous as as their sensitivity suggests, mm -hmm. or are they just paranoid? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, like, like I said, there is unrest in China, but there's unrest in every society. Um, in Canada, we, we now have these trucker freedom convoys, right? And people are like, oh, Canada's a stable society. People support, you know, our government. But, you know, everywhere there's people who are unhappy. Um, definitely there's a lot to be unhappy about with China. Like even just the average person living in Beijing, um, granted, I, my circles were, you know, more of the privileged elite people, Chinese people who had exposure to world news and who had traveled abroad. But, you know, the average person, like surveys show, like reputable, um, like Pew research surveys show that in China, the support for the government is actually pretty high. Um, they don't want um, Do generally the polls. Uh, the Pew? Yeah, even even like just I I I struggle to believe that that Chinese citizens would feel they could express themselves regardless of who was. Yeah, doing that's true. Show. Like it's really interesting actually how um, researchers try to account for that and the way they word the questions. Um, but you know, just anecdotally, the ways the interactions I had in China, I think people themselves are kind of. Um, traumatized by all of the instability and unrest and revolutions that China has had all throughout, you know, 19th, 20th century. And they kind of do want to have stability. And to them, that's putting up with, you know, Chinese Communist Party rule, as long as it doesn't interfere too much with their lives. Um, but increasingly, as, you know, under Xi Jinping, everything has become more tightened. Um, rules increasingly affect people's lives who aren't political at all, where in the past people were like, it, it sucks that human rights lawyers and, you know, um, poets, mm -hmm. um, activists are being rounded up and arrested, but we just won't do that. I just won't become an activist and then things will be fine. My family will be fine. Um, but it's become, you know, so tightened that the average person's lives are being affected and they're becoming disgruntled. Um, for example, um, a law saying that you can't do, can't play video games if you're under 18 any day except for Friday <laughs> evening. Um, so 
something like that. It's like, it's not like a big deal as if um, you're thrown in jail, but the average, you know, kid is like, okay, because they, they're thinking like, you know, because of the government, I can't play my favorite games <laughs> after school. Yeah. I need to find a fake ID or whatnot. Do you think um, that like or, encourages the, the, do you think that kind of thing ends up encouraging the law breaking more and it, it makes criminals out of people not criminals but it makes yeah. people who are willing to break Rebels. the rules more like once they've because they've been pushed to do it once <laughs> and then it's like it's like a gateway crime you know <laughs> yeah i don't know i think just it's just human nature that when it affects your day-to-day -day life that you're just going to be like if i can find some way to get around things and i will definitely i saw that um all around um the cities um but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're anti-government or they want an overthrow uh, of their government. So, but I feel that there must be something going on. Like I try to talk to political analysts and they say Xi Jinping, he's trying to purge his political opponents. Um, so I think there's instability in the society that leaders are worried about. And there's also infighting um, and competition within the Chinese Communist Party elite. And a lot of these people are the children of the original, you know, Communist Party revolutionaries who had a civil war with the nationalists, you know, Sun Yat-sen's uh, group uh, after the last dynasty fell. Um, and they're, they're so politicized and they're so... They feel like they have a responsibility to hang on and um, be a strong power um, after. And Xi Jinping has made so many speeches in particular that letting any type of liberal reforms or criticism flourish uh, was what the Soviet Union did um, before its breakdown. So we shouldn't do that. Like as soon as he came to power, people were like, Oh, maybe he'll be a little bit more of a reformer, but he made these speeches like we must not give any um, <laughs> room for for dissent. Um, and definitely he's been true to his word. Um, it's it's tough like uh, to be an average Chinese citizen right now if you want to make certain choices that increasingly um, become so regulated. Uh, Internet companies, they're responsible legally to monitor their platforms. Um, so it's interesting what happens when movements kind of flower up and then they get shut down, um, like the Me Too movement, um, what we've seen happen with uh, Peng Shui, the tennis player who um, disappeared from public view for weeks after she made allegations against his former senior leader. Um, so I think there is um, things to worry about. I think there's things behind the scenes happening at the top tiers of the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party leadership that could also help explain some of this um, really um, seems over the top sensitivity. But it's something that Western leaders need to understand um, because I think so long this has happened to average people around the world who are getting visits from Chinese officials or calls um, because we underestimate that sensitivity, underestimate the resources um, provided to just ensure stability and support around the world. Um, another aspect I cover in my book, which um, is interesting, the flip side of that is also trying to co-opt um, and convince elites around the world um, to be um, supporters of what China is trying to do. And in that, a lot of it is different. A lot of it is offering that, economic incentives 
uh, giving people the VIP treatment, offering paid trips to China. Um, so I guess you might have some questions about that later, but there's just a lot of energy devoted to trying to gain influence around the world in both subtle and harsher means. When usually when the carrots don't work, I say they resort to sticks. Like something might happen to your grandma in Shanghai or your grandma in Beijing, like literally threatening people's elderly relatives is, is so common. It's a bit disturbing. The mm -hmm. Elderly relatives. I always get, you know, it's a, it's like one thing to go after me, but like, you know, yeah, leave the yeah. parents alone. I know. Like um, in my last chapter, I talked with an Australian cartoonist who lives in exile in Melbourne. Um, and his family was like, we grew up in the revolution. You know, our intellectual, your grandparents were thrown in jail for their views. So if you want to be a satirical cartoonist, get GTFO out of China, right? Um, and he did, he cut off ties with his family, but still um, he used an anonymous, he wore a mask everywhere. He just really wanted to protect his family while doing his work. But, you know, Chinese authorities still found out who he was and then visited his parents to try to put pressure on him not to have exhibits overseas. Oh, that's so bad. Mm -hmm. Oh, it keeps happening. It's really... <laughs> It's disturbing. I mean, the, like, and this brings us to the, 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 I guess, what the the main point that I have taken from from your book was was this. It's the the question is like, are Western governments are they complicit in this? Like, are they are they aware and are just happy to ignore what's happening because of either economic incentives um, on their own for their own person for the country or the detrimental consequences of like pissing off China basically like what is what is me leading us to be not so naive really um, I think is the best way to put it yeah yeah so I think um the fact that I was able to travel and do reporting in places that were more economically depressed in the west including Greece and Italy at the time um I did a lot of reporting overseas in 2019 um, after leaving China and I wanted to, you know, go around the world and see their, what their relations are like. Um, definitely places that are economically struggling, um, like Greece, who have been reliant on the EU, you know, particularly um, kind of bailouts from Germany for years, dealing with uh, the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. Um, they were in a unique position um, to be susceptible um, or not necessarily the word susceptible or vulnerable kind of makes it seem like certain western actors are just passive they're just like okay we're weak so we're going to compromise whatever values and just accept chinese help but definitely is proactive um and there's a lot of it's interesting to explore because there's a lot of um respect and faith involved for people in grace who are just feeling disrespected um by, you know, other Western nations. And then it's really quite savvy um, what China did. You know, Xi Jinping, he visited Greece so many times and he talked about, he really emphasized that they were both ancient civilizations that were kind of um, hard done by, by some more powerful Western imperialists. Um, when Greece was trying to get, um, you know, the London British Museum to give back it's Parthenon marbles, you know, that uh, the freeze of <laughs> um, China came in, like, we support you, you know, with the looting of the Summer Palace um, by the British. They also 
stole our treasures, which is true. I went to the British Museum for my book tour and there's like all of these like imperial treasures and there's no, <laughs> and the um, captors don't say we stole this. It's like, no. you know, donated by soldier so-and-so, you know? We chose um, to put them on display. It's, yeah, it's we just, didn't it's steal them. They're just there, <laughs> you know? <laughs> they yeah. look better there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the Chinese president would be like, would emphasize what they had in common and be like, and the help provided um, the loans, uh, the takeover of the port of Piraeus, you know, Athens major port wasn't kind of depicted as a charity case, but like a partnership and this was going to be good for Greece. I visited the port of Piraeus, spoke with dock workers and the union there. And there's like reluctant, um, satisfaction with the Chinese state-owned company takeover of the port, you know, operations for the next hundred years. Um, productivity has improved. There's been, you know, a, uh, input of a lot of resources to um, improve what was really becoming dilapidated. And so the situation is complicated. You know, when, you know, a country really needs some support and they don't want support with um, kind of, judgment attached to it you know china's help is very very logically attractive um but the question is whether accepting these economic partnerships will lead to some sort of self-censorship or maybe you know some behind the scenes deals that these countries would also support china politically on uh, and international organizations. And within a couple of years, Athens at the UN actually uh, vetoed or blocked two major human rights criticisms of China. Uh, at, at one time, it was the only time the EU as a bloc tabled and failed to pass uh, human rights criticism of what was happening in China because of Greece stepping in and be like, we vetoed this. So people ask questions about um, economic world. influence turning into political influence and especially at a time where there is more awareness of what China is doing around the world um, also within its own borders you know the horrors of what's happening in internment camps um, for Muslims um, when we have you know Greece says it's like the where democracy was founded when we have major Western nations actually vetoing um, some of these efforts to put some, you know, even symbolic pressure on Beijing for its human rights violations. then it just seems like the West is in a pretty weak place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, do you think that the reaction to, to Ukraine and the, the Russian invasion in Ukraine will sort of spark maybe people to say hey if we can get russia to stop invading ukraine maybe we can step get china to stop putting people in camps like, do, you, do you see that or do you see the opposite terrifying scenario where china say who everyone's distracted let's go for taiwan come april um, um it's so complicated to try to wrap your head around and definitely um I think it actually shows that I think there's some optimism there in seeing how China diplomatically has uh, behaved in regards to actually speaking up um, in support of Ukraine's sovereignty and against the invasion. Um, I think 
My book is also really critical of how conversations on China can be really, really just over the top. Like they're boogeymen, they're just evil. There's nothing to be done. It's very black and white, mm. uh, but it's complicated. I say before this happened, I say that if you haven't given um, smarter foreign policy on China a fair try, it's too early to say it's impossible. You give up mm. because for so long, uh, major speaking, interviewing um, former politicians, their primary goal relating to China was to expand economic and trade ties as much as possible. Human rights often, they would tell me, was just lip service. It was something to kind of appease domestic Western audiences. Like, we're inking this trade deal of China, but here this, this is a statement on human rights, you know. Um, so... Yeah. yeah, it's like signing I, a massive oil deal and telling people it's about yeah, diversity. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and the UK has done such a big switch where it was like the golden years, you know, um, having beers with Xi Jinping and, you know, signing, like being a supporter of uh, China's uh, Belt and Road Investment Scheme to, you know, as I guess in the last few years of what's happened in Hong Kong and others, I think in, in the UK, things have also taken uh, a turn where people are more pessimistic, more aware of uh, human rights and political issues. Um, but I say it's not too pessimistic because all throughout this, Chinese diplomats and leaders have been taking meetings, going to international summits, wanting, they don't want to, you know, tear down the UN, they want more influence within the UN. Um, they're still a country that wants to have diplomatic ties and they want to have respect. Um, we see this when they hosted the Olympics and instead of a big show of force, like the opening ceremony was children waving doves, like, you know, flowing grass, like really relaxing images. Like it's okay. You can still be friends with us. Uh, kind of a message. Yeah. Um, We're not scary. Like, yeah, exactly. Don't worry about us. We're just, yeah. Yes. It's like, here's a Uyghur holding our flag. Look how happy he is, right? Um, did you ever so see, a, sorry, did you ever see the song? Yeah, the there's an interest in engaging. And we see, but, you know, there's a view that, you know, authoritarian nations are going to come together in this scary cabal um, and be against democracies. But one of my chapters was on Russia. I, I worked with Russian journalists on the ground. And it talked about how there's actually a lot of uh, friction in the Russian-Chinese relationship, especially when it comes to people to people, you know, businesses like clashing, you know, the Russian and Chinese, you know, top parts of the government, you know, try to do all these cooperation deals. But when it actually comes to um, implementing them, the, the people, there's tensions. Um, and in, in Moscow, um, there is uh, kind of a worrying concern that China is encroaching on Russia's um, traditional sphere of influence in Central Asia. Uh, Central Asia is quite important and uh, of interest to Beijing's leaders. So the, the pre-existing relationship between Russia and China was already more complex than a lot of people knew about. And there was no formal military alliance um, and Basically, and it just ties also into overarching fear of instability uh, that China's leaders have. They don't want like a crazy world war happening. Um, they want to kind of balance their interests. If it becomes not in China's interest to provide more support to Russians, including economic supports, um, they won't do it. Like they're very, 
they're not like married with Russian interests. We see some Chinese banks um, cooperating with Western sanctions on Russia right now. They don't want to be seen as enabling mm-hmm. Russia. Um, so or they're worried they'll get hit with the same sanctions. Yeah, or or that. <laughs> Um, Especially with Evergrande then, sort of hovering on a on a, that, yeah. But definitely, I think it's worth looking at whether relying on China now as someone as the only country that could be a more um, source of influence on 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 Putin on Russia to moderate um, whether that will come with cost down the line with ignoring again these ongoing human rights issues and um, China's kind of claim to Taiwan and South China Sea and also the people of Chinese descent around the world. I don't think equating what Russia's doing with what China could do is, is that helpful. I don't think China has been, you know, mobilizing to uh, invade Taiwan, but it definitely has threatened it. And definitely there is growing nationalism, and um, kind of a more aggressive wolf warrior diplomacy where Taiwan is increasingly threatened. Um, But I think if what's happening in Russia leads to more smart and well-informed research and policymaking in China, that would be kind of a silver lining. But we can't equate, like all, it's not like all authoritarian countries are operating the same. And it's not like they're all best of friends. Um, So I try to, always just add that nuance and complexity. And my book, um, I should say, is almost like a collaboration because I didn't want to do that parachute journalism in every Western country and in every place in Greece, um, Italy, Australia, I worked with local partners, research partners, either experts or journalists. um, And, you know, they took part, like they were paid and their research is in there and (laughs) they're fully credited. So it's almost like a yeah, a collaboration where I try to provide that local expertise uh, to international readers um, to try to have as much nuance as possible. Mm-hmm. So the final thing I want to ask you about just before we finish up here is one of the things you said, I think you mentioned it a little bit here and in the book as well, was that there are people still in China on the inside who don't want things to get worse and mm-hmm. would maybe even possibly prefer if there was a little more sort of liberalization in terms of like freedoms and and, and, and rights. Um, do you think that's a realistic possibility? Like, is, is, there a, is there a scenario you can foresee in which China liberalizes peacefully? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like a waiting game because I interacted so much with young people in China, um, the generation that did not experience a cultural revolution, um, you know, 60s, 70s, and all of that instability where families were torn apart because of different ideology. Um, I think for anyone who's like upper middle age and over, their kind of willingness to not push back about what the government's doing, a lot of it is related to that childhood trauma of um, just complete chaos across society and just wanting to stick with the status quo and, you know, put their heads down, um, you know, trying to interview older people in China about what happened even in their own lives. A lot of people just don't want to talk about it. It's as if it's a collective amnesia or just a, 
agreement to just move on and don't think about it and just focus on yourself, focus on your own family. Um, but young people, you know, millennials and younger, they didn't have that personal experience of that trauma. And, you know, they don't have as much of that emotional need to stick with the status quo. Eventually, I think they're going to be China's next leaders. And I think, again, that is why there's this current climate of trying to control, trying to um, censor and control what's taught in schools as much as possible. Because I think Chinese, you know, their older leaders are often like 60s and older. They know that younger Chinese people don't, most of them don't have that, you know, communist ideology. Um, Yes, so seen, they worry about the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they have. They worry about the future of CCP rule. Perhaps they should be, um, but unfortunately, Singh waited out. Um, Xi Jinping, he's emperor for life, as he gave himself the ability to be president until he dies. Um, he's still in his sixties. <laughs> um, people live a long time, so I think just kind of sitting back and be like, the young people of China will take care of it eventually. It isn't a great um, stance either, even though it's important to have in your head to try to be more optimistic um, that the future is not going to be necessarily what we've seen now. Um, but I say that we can look at what Western countries are doing and not doing. Um, often the people who are the most smart, way smarter than me on China, they're actually pushed out of decision-making um, organizations and institutions. I did a, I wrote an essay recently in Noema magazine about why America's um, nuance on conversations on China is dead. Um, and I interviewed people who worked in intelligence and policymaking in the U.S. who had to deal with um, increased screening and constant jokes, you know, jokes that they were Chinese spies. Um, always anyone with, even if they're married to a Chinese woman, they have, they've lived in China for, you know, more than like a, a short trip. Um, if they have that ability to have um, deep understanding of China, instead of being kind of celebrated and welcomed into decision-making um, rooms, the conversation in China has become so heated and almost paranoid in the West that they're being treated often as suspicious, as hostile. Um, I've devoted, you know, basically my career to writing about human rights and politics in China. And anytime I try to be like, this isn't quite right, or you're, um, this is a kind of over the top, a lot, you, you know, guaranteed one of the comments would be, oh, you're a Chinese spy, you're a stooge for the CCP. Um, so I think the conversations and the people um, making decisions on how to understand China is so flawed because of this kind of racism and xenophobia and this distrust of people with more kind of nuanced takes, more um, deeply layered um, understandings of China. So, but again, I'm optimistic because when I was writing the book, I was more pessimistic because it was really obvious that's what people were saying, you know, but the book came out and it did the tour and then, you know, people in the government are saying like, actually, we're kind of aware of this and we created a new body that tries to um, have more diversity in in our state department or our government. And we're going to talk to, um, you know, you know, 
British Chinese, where you're trying to talk to more of these communities and understand them. Um, so since the book came out, I've been a little bit more optimistic, maybe because after I do that public criticism, people kind of come out of the woodworks and be like, actually, we're doing this and that. Um, so I think we're at a pivotal moment where it can either go, the response from the West can just be so off the mark and just so over the top, it actually creates more harm than good. Um, or we could actually make use of the intellectual resources we have um, to create you know, smarter policy in China to more um, increase our ability to actually understand what's happening in places like Hong Kong and China and to communities around the world. Mm. Well, Joanna, uh, unfortunately, I would love to stay for another hour or two because, yeah, uh, your book was fantastic and I'd love to pick your brain. But unfortunately, I really, really, really have to run. Um, so everybody, uh, Joanna's book is China Unbound. Uh, I'll put links for that. Uh, your Twitter, your, your writing in the description below. Um, so thanks very much. Really appreciate yeah, your thank time. You so much, thanks so much. And yeah, if people have questions, you can find me on Twitter. I'm happy to talk about all things China and how we can, you know, do better. Well, fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time. Thanks for listening.